Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. This podcast here is my effort to shape a space, to give voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thanks to everyone who's been tuning in. Thanks to all y'all who have been supporting this project. And hey, if need be, uh, I'm sorry I haven't dropped an episode for a few weeks. Uh, Of course, if you've been reading my weekly newsletter, uh, you know that I've kind of been uh, (laughs) stirring to my own juices a little bit, just trying to do too many things at once. All good things, all good things. But looking back, I think I was just trying to make as much as I possibly could out of my summer. Your boy got stupid ambitious, maybe chased a few windmills too many, and here we are. But uh, fear not, I'm working on the ambition, accomplishment, ego thing. Been doing some reading, doing some meditation on authenticity, getting some help. No shame in that. Nope. And extracurricular ambitions need to be checked anyway. Kicked off my 24th year of teaching yesterday. Baby girl just started fifth grade. Wife lady started a new job. Oh, me oh my. We're doing it. We're doing it all together. It's going to be fine. It's going to be just fine. Now, this here is a fine conversation with a mighty fine fella. Steve Berman is the executive vice president of Film Finances, Inc. out in Hollywood, USA. Now, Steve and I grew up in the same neighborhood. Uh, We became friends during a critical time in our lives. And though I'd not had the pleasure of hearing his voice for more than 25 years, I I think of him frequently and, and fondly. I always liked Steve. I remember how smart and savvy he is. Though I got to admit, somehow I forgot how sweet he is. We had a lively conversation with a few little surprises. I'm not going to spoil those now, but you'll see. You'll see. So Steve explains how he works to ensure that films and streaming series get made on time and on budget. Uh, He discusses how he navigates the tricky space at the funky intersection of art and finance. And he shares what it feels like to work face-to-face with top-tier talent, legendary actors and directors that he's long admired. So if you watch movies or a streaming series, and like who, who among us does it, you're really going to enjoy this one. So join me in conversation with Steve Berman. Steve Berman, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? Oh, first of all, great to talk to you, sir. What I do, it's a little complicated, but uh, the simplest way to say it is I am a completion guarantor for film and TV projects, which means that we give a guarantee to the financiers uh, of a project. They will actually get a completed project, ideally if we've done our jobs well on time and on budget. So. I hope I might get you, Steve, to situate your work 
in an historical context. And it's not necessarily because I have a hard time taking my history instructor hat off, uh, but because I read a blurb about the history of Film Finances, Inc. on the company website. And and I, I got to be honest, I find it riveting. Yeah. So, yes, that is my company, Film Finances. And Film Finances was started in 1950 in London. It's the basically the, the business that invented the business, um, this product, which is still a relatively niche business. But basically, you know, it coming out of World War II and, and sort of the film industry was booming in the UK uh, or trying to boom, I guess I should say. And the gentleman who basically came up with the concept, which was, look, the only way to get a movie made is either directly by a studio or to have some rich benefactor, just private money that's willing to fund a movie, which is obviously a high risk thing to do. So they basically came up with this idea. It's basically an insurance product that could give an assurance to a bank who's willing to give a loan as long as there's collateral that you know they'll have financial protection uh, to give the loan that the movie that they're giving a loan against will actually be completed. And if not, uh, they'll get paid back by the guarantor. Additionally, if the movie goes over budget, the guarantor is the one on the hook for those overages. So basically, it's one or the other. Either they'll pay the overages to complete the movie so that the loan will get paid off because there's a movie at the end of the day, or if they fail to complete the project, then they'll just pay the bank back. So this basically freed up all different avenues for financing of movies, and it really basically created the environment where independent film could actually you know, proliferate. So it was really sort of an ingenious product uh, that just opened up the doors to all different facets of financing a movie and people who didn't have direct connections to studios or, you know, weren't able to convince, convince excuse me, uh, a rich benefactor or private money to put their money in. It gave them a new track to actually get a film financed. So it was a bit uh, revolutionary. And now, you know, it's become just a standard thing in the business. We bond you know, anywhere from 150 to 200 projects a year globally from all our offices. So, you know, and anything from a little million dollar project all the way to $200 million. So, you know, it, it really, it's a unique product, but it touches all aspects of the industry. Yeah, it is unique. And that's part of the reason I'm so excited to learn more about it uh, today. So listen, with, with that uh, historical context firmly established. And I thank you for doing that. I, I think it might be helpful to establish something for our listeners. And I know this is a dreadfully novice question, but I'll have to humbly beg for the straight answer. Like, why are films so insanely expensive? <laughs> um, uh, it's a great question. Um, because it takes a lot of people and a lot of time to make one. Uh, and then obviously the more you're dealing with talent, artist, egos, celebrity, you know, there's an, an inflation cost to all of that. Um, and it's also a, a glamorous product, right? So there's people, even though, you know, proven time and time again, that getting into film and in TV is not the most wise investment for money. The the upside and the you know the lure of the the celebrity spotlight and the glamour continues to bring money in. So um, 
I guess financial logic kind of goes out the window a bit, right? <laughs> These aren't sound investment models. Yeah. Uh, but then also, you know, and I'm not blaming unions or anything like that, but, um, but you know, obviously, especially, you know, in the US and in other uh, sort of developed countries, you know, everybody's unionized, there's benefits, uh, there's a lot of penalties for, for going into overtime and things like that. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, obviously, people should be paid fairly, but, you know, those things set a baseline of what you're paying people and usually it ends up getting exceeded. And, and it's even worse now, by the way, just because, you know, of the, you know, content wars of the streamers and now there's so much more out there so for at least for the top end professionals, both in front and behind the camera, you know, it's a it's a it's a seller's market for them for their services. Right. So rates go up because everyone's competing for the same actors, the same directors, you know, the same high end writers, et cetera. So that just brings those costs up. So they're just getting more and more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense. It's a good answer. And I think that like now that you've kind of helped us to understand why creative approaches to funding are needed. And since you so kindly gave us that historical context, perhaps I might be able to get you to offer just, I don't know, just like a little personal history. Like how did you get on this path? It was a total fluke. Um, <laughs> I went to film school uh, you know, I wanted to be the next great uh, writer director. Yeah. Um, I came out to LA on an internship. Uh, I worked on the movie Bowfinger as an unpaid intern, which was uh, still probably my favorite experience I've ever had in the film industry. Eddie Murphy. But I quickly or Steve Martin. Exactly, Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin. Uh, it was a it was a funny movie and a great experience and a wonderful group of people, um, and a, and a ton of fun. But anyway, so that was my my first you know step into the industry. And, you know, I proved myself competent and started to, uh, you know, get actually paid positions and start to move up in the uh, production office side of the business, which is like, product, you know, production management. And uh, I was still relatively young, although I had worked on a number of studio projects. And I just got a random call right after I'd come off a movie from somebody at this company, Film Finances, who had gotten my name from somebody else. They were looking for a coordinator type person, a junior position. Uh, you know, they said, do you want to come in and talk to us? And I said, sure, why not? You know, I just never turned down an opportunity to at least find out what the gig is. And, um, you know, they were nice people that they made it sound interesting. And more than anything, I'd been working straight for three years, working 14 hour days, using my weekends to just get my laundry done, not really having much of a life outside of work. This was, hey, you get to go home at six o'clock. And I said, hey, that sounds fun <laughs> for a few months to yeah. be able to actually go out to dinner. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it would be a three-month gig like most of my movie experiences had been prior to that. And uh, it's 23 years later and I'm still there. 23 years. That's extraordinary. At some point in this conversation, I'm going to have to ask you uh, how and why it is that you've managed to stick around for 23 years. Um, maybe we'll, we'll be able to reflect on that as our conversation goes on. Um but maybe before we get there, like along your path, Steve Berman, you, you've come to know some pretty special people. Um, and uh, some of them I, I know also. And in my own version of like, a, <laughs> like an Oprah Winfrey look under your chair exercise, I texted a couple folks who you and I share some history with. 
And I, I gave them a, a chance to ask questions of you. And I'm going to pepper a few of those questions into our conversation today. Is that all right with you? Yeah, great. I could guess who one of those people is. Uh, I'm fairly certain. Okay, maybe, maybe. So uh, you and I, we know a fellow, a Riley Ram, a Cooper Cobra, a dude who I believe literally tried to back a bison at one point, also an alum of this here podcast, though uh, that's hardly his crowning achievement. Anyway, Scott Robin wanted me to get you to talk about your early years in the industry. Uh, Scott said that you you started in the field uh, rather young, you rose rather fast, and he's hoping that you can like reflect on your first years in the industry, like considering the, the personalities and the egos and the artistry, like how did you manage to navigate the complexities of this work in your 20s? You know, I, I, I don't have a uh, well thought out or sophisticated answer to that. <laughs> my attitude throughout my entire career is keep your head down and just do a good job and always be focused on what you don't know and what you, you know, where your weaknesses are, what you need to learn. I've never pretended to know more than I do. I've been very open when I have been curious or saying, hey, I've never experienced this before. Can you help me? And so I've just been very sort of straightforward and just say, I'm just going to try to do the best job I can here. And, you know, funny enough, which to me, to me, feels like a very Midwest sort of ethic and attitude, which obviously I bring being from Chicago. And, um, but it's somehow a rarity out here <laughs> and I think refreshing to people. So, you know, uh, people were like, oh, we like this guy. He's not here. He's not looking for recognition. He's just trying to do a good job. And we like that. How refreshing is that? Somebody who's trying to help me and learn and, uh, you know, not uh, just trying to look to promote themselves. So the, I just focused on the work and that proved to be beneficial. Were you aware of your humility then like were you consciously sort of maintaining that humility in the face of what you knew and what you know can sometimes be a world of big egos and big personalities I, you know i don't think it was ever conscious it's just i guess it's sort of just my default especially coming out here and you know and people look people in all facets, but especially in this industry, love to present themselves as kings of the world. And they carry, you know, I know a lot and I'm very accomplished. And, you know, for lack of any experience, I believed all them. And I assumed everybody knew more than I did. And people must know the secret here. And I was very deferential and just assumed, well, I know the least here at this room. So I'm just going to shut up and, and try to learn as much as possible. And it took a long time before I finally realized I think I'm actually smarter than some of these people. And I think I know more than some of these people. And I, but I still generally, you know, like I said, I don't, I focus on what I don't know. And I'm constantly sort of, um, I wouldn't say worried, but I, you know, I, I, I have an uneasy feeling about what is it that I'm not thinking here, right? As soon as you get, I, I've never gotten comfortable. There's always something to get better at, to learn, to put energy into, uh, to become just a better, I mean, human, but, you know, it's definitely at my job. You know, there's nobody in this industry who's an expert in everything. And that's why it takes so many people to do the, you know, to make a movie happen, to make the industry function. So, you know, you may be an expert in your little corner, 
but there's a ton you don't know, and there's always something to learn. Well, I really appreciate that you seem to have maintained this humility after doing this for more than two, two decades, you know, like you're a bona fide Hollywood vet at this point and you rose through the ranks and you're a vice president now. And, and I think we should really dive into to that work. So a producer makes an appointment, right? Uh-huh. And they're, they're seeking a contract with FFI for funding. Uh-huh. And then you then, as I understand it, you, you request the script, the shooting schedule, the budget. Can you describe what you do with that data? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the, in the simplest terms, we're basically looking at this like an equation. You know, basically, can this group of people, so the professionals who are involved in it, the you know, key being the producers, the director, can these people make this movie, the script, for this amount of money, right? So that's just the equation that we're sort of adding up. And all of those elements are their own thing, you know, so it's not, because any movie can be made for any amount of money, right? The question is, are these the right people to do it? And what is the expectation of what the movie is going to be at the end of the day, right? The $200 million version of Titanic is one movie. You could make it for $30 million, but it's going to be a very different movie. And if Jim Cameron's directing it, you know it's never going to cost $30 million. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I just use that as a very broad example. So the first thing we do is we read the script. And you're not reading it for creative content. I mean, we have our opinions, but that's not really our job. Our job is to say, okay, so what is this going to cost? How many locations do we have? How much special effects do we have? Are there kids in the movie, which means you have less hours to shoot with? Are there animals in the movie? Does it take place at night? Does it take place at day? You know, is it inside? Is it outside? Are we going to have weather issues, right? So you're reading, you're going through a script, much like a line producer and a first AD would, and trying to just pick out all the elements that basically are the things that influence how much time and how much money is this going to take, right? And then you basically look at that through the lens of who's making it and you know, and then you go through their budget. And so you're looking at how the budget supports making this script. Um, and obviously, you're, you know, there's the just mechanics of a budget, you know, or do they have all the right rates and fringes and expected costs for where they're going to shoot it in here. So that's, that's the equation we're trying to solve. And those are the core elements to do it. And there's obviously a lot of other things that get factored in, but ultimately that's what the job is. Hmm. So I, I kind of want to pause on this for a second because I'm curious, perhaps first and foremost, like what the difficult part is when you're looking at a script and the shooting schedule and the budget and you have a sense of like what could go wrong or which is to say what could go over budget or over time. What's the hard part about looking at the data and seeing the extent to which that lines up with the proposed budget for the film? The people. That's the hardest thing. Anytime you're dealing with just the people involved, that's always the hardest thing to quantify or to get comfortable with. You know, because at the end of the day, a movie is just a millions of decisions that need to get made, right? And so who's making those decisions? Are they capable of making those decisions? Then most importantly, are they capable of making those decisions in a timely manner? Hmm. Um, you know, a consistent problem that happens on movies when they go 
you know, sideways cost wise is that decisions aren't being made in a timely manner. You know, that's a universal truth, I would say, in movies that, that um, have, have issues. So, you know, for instance, it, it's, yeah, this is all well and good, but if the director doesn't pick their hero location in time, then the art department and the other various departments don't have enough time to properly plan and prepare for that. So now they're scrambling. So now you're working six and seven days. Maybe things aren't set up properly or the director's just not prepared to shoot it on the day. So, you know, and it should only take eight hours to shoot, but because they didn't have everything sort of, you know, decisions weren't made earlier, et cetera, it's now going to end up taking two days to shoot. So that's, an, you know, a bit of an oversimplification, but that's the hardest thing to quantify. You know, you know what guild rules are, you know how much equipment costs, you know uh, what happens. But, but even again, it's about how is it going to shoot? So, you know, a, a common piece of expensive equipment that you use on a movie is called a techno crane. It's a, you know, for the camera. And it's for more complex kind of elaborate camera moves. You know, and it's an expensive piece of equipment. So usually you only have it for select days. So, you know, and as much as they can say, two months out from shooting, oh yeah, we only need three technocrane days. Then of course you get closer and they're like, oh, we need the technocrane every day. So that's just, you know, that's just an off the top of my head example of the things that are, you can't quantify the human element, the choices that are made and when those choices get made. So if I understand this correctly, a, a producer will come to you and they will ask you for a certain amount of money. You said anywhere between one and two hundred million bucks that that you're going to secure for them. Am I right so far? Well, just to just to give a bit of clarity, and we have the worst name in 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 the business, <laughs> film finances, because we don't finance yeah. films, but we get a million calls saying, "Hey, can you finance my movie?" Right. So we actually don't directly finance anything unless the movie goes over budget. What we're doing is we're giving the financiers a guarantee that they'll get their movie at the end of the day. So, you know, basically our guarantee triggers the money coming to production. So yes, we help them secure the money, but we don't actually okay. fund it just to make that clear. Right. Thanks for clarifying. Super important. Sorry. Now I forgot the original question. My apologies. No, no, no. You answered the question. You answered the question. I think this is like the back half of that question. So the producer comes to you to ensure that the financing that they're pursuing can be secured. Right. Right. You're looking at the data really closely. I imagine that sometimes you look at the script and the locations and they have their I's dotted and their T's crossed and it makes sense. Like the budget makes sense. They've thought it all through and you're like, yeah, you you're 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 a stud. Good for you. Let's let's green light everything. And then oftentimes it doesn't happen quite like that. So first, a very small question, like about what percentage of the time do you feel like it's pretty easy for you to secure the financing for a particular project? Like it, it, everything makes sense and you could be like, let's move forward. Gosh, it's, it's hard to answer because we get so many submissions that never end up happening, not because we just say no, but just they're never really real. The financing was never real kind of thing. Things fall apart, okay. actors fall away. Yeah. So it's difficult. But as far as the movies that we actually do, um, so let's just say, you know, if we did 100 out of our LA office, uh, I'd say maybe kind of half are easy yeses. 
Okay. Yeah. Something like that. So I, I would, I, I wouldn't have guessed it was anywhere near that high. Talk to me about the other half, or it's not so clear that the finances for the film can be secured. <laughs> well, okay. There's a lot there, but yes, the. My, I feel like most of my job is navigating potentially contentious conversations, telling filmmakers, producers, you have a problem here. This doesn't make sense. Um, and a lot of energy is spent in how to navigate those conversations so that they can actually be productive. Look, the, you know, the phrase, you know, that always gets used, especially if you're making an independent movie is we're backing into a number, right? Okay. There was a script. Everybody fell in love with the script. This is how much money we were able to raise. That much money is not supporting the script or the director's vision. So what are we doing? We're backing into a number. We're making creative compromises to make the number fit. And, you know, we're often basically having to basically present the producers, not this starkly, but basically saying, look, you know, these two items don't line up. So are you going to amend the script or the creative vision so that it fits the numbers? Or are you going to get more money to pay for the script? And, you know, so it's which, you know, which side are you doing surgery on to make it work? And look, it never lines up perfectly. But, you know, the way we structure deals is we have what's called a contingency in the budget, which is basically a, you know, a 10% pad. It's not a full 10%, but just as a, as a ballpark number, that's there to basically deal with the normal ebbs and flows of these, some things go over, some things come under of a movie production. There's a bit of a buffer for, to, to cover off issues prior to going wrong. Now that's to presumably to cover true problems. And if you don't spend it during the shoot, then you can use it for what we'd call enhancements, right? You can willfully spend it on additional things you want if it's still there. Um, but you know, it doesn't need to line up perfectly going in, right? Because we have that contingency and you're never going to know if it actually lines up perfectly. Um, but some things are obvious. Uh, like you'll never be able to shoot this movie in 30 days, but you can only afford 30 days. So, you know, you're probably going to have to cut some pages out of the script. Hmm. Is there a facet of the process that even seasoned filmmakers have a tendency to overlook or underestimate when it comes to the budget? Yes. Uh, visual effects. <laughs> Every time. It's a universal truth. Yeah. <laughs> huh. And is it hard for you to communicate that to them? How do you communicate that to them? Well, <laughs> let me let me sort of back that up into a broader situation. So, you know, we're the bond company. Many people look at us as just the enemy, as as an adversary that they have to deal with. But what they don't realize is that, um, or a, a number of people don't realize is that we're very experienced film production people. And the fact that we do so many movies a year, we actually see more and know more than most production executives or freelance production people. We're doing movies all over the world of all budget ranges. So we've seen a lot. So we have a deep database of knowledge of what things end up costing, of what how things go, of what ends up happening on a movie. 
And so we share this knowledge freely and we'll tell people like, look, we've been down this road. This is what it's going to be. And most people either don't believe us because they think we have some other agenda, uh, you know, and we're just there to screw them over or that we don't know what we're talking about and we're just being counters and, you know, you guys aren't, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's the broad challenge of the job is that at the end of the day, like, we just want to help movies get made. We want to help them get made responsibly, right? If it gets made on budget and, you know, that's good for all parties involved, that means the financiers don't get burned. They're happy. The banks are happy. Everyone's ready to do it again, right? And that ultimately is good for the business, for everybody, right? The more people that are happy who don't get burned by doing this, you know, they stick around and they'll do more movies. Um, so, you know, that ultimately is our agenda, you know, and obviously when things go over budget, then it's an unpleasant situation for everybody, which nobody's going to enjoy. So, you know, we don't want that to end up happening. So we try to share stuff based on our insights. Like, look, we've done this enough times, guys. We're telling you this is not enough money for visual effects. I know you have a bid from a vendor, but that bid means nothing. And we know what's going to end up happening. Like that bid is assuming that this sequence where, you know, a lion attacks a family in a car you're only going to need eight visual effect shots. It's not. It's going to take 40 visual effect shots. Or, you know, I'm just throwing a random thing out there. Sure, sure, sure. So, like, we're just, we've seen how this goes based on doing 100 movies a year. And then, you know, but then without fail, the producer has never made a thing saying, I think I know better than you guys. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's tricky. You know, I mean, like, and also producers are trying to get their movie made. Producers are, you know, and it's very hard to be a producer. We're very sensitive to, you know, the infinite amount of battles a producer needs to fight, to things they need to solve. And, you know, they're just looking for yeses. So if someone tells them they want to hear and it's not another problem they want to solve, they're going to believe it, mm. right? Because it makes their life easier. Right. Um, you know, an analogy I've, I've used from time to time is we're kind of like the designated drivers <laughs> for the film industry. <laughs> Everyone else is drinking, you know, trying to have a good time. And we're the ones being like, hey, everybody, I'm just here to try to get you home safely. Like, you know, because we don't have an agenda at the end of the day. We don't have creative stake in the movie. If the movie makes a billion dollars, it makes zero dollars. It doesn't impact us. Uh, you know, whether the movie's a, you know, wins Oscars, which we've actually bonded a number of Best Picture winners, or the movie is, you know, nominated for all the Razzies, which we've bonded plenty of those too. <laughs> it ultimately doesn't reflect on us. So we don't care. And sometimes people don't even know how to handle that because most people in the movie business, you know, have an angle. They're, it's, they're serving their own agenda. They're trying to, uh, you know, get their piece of the pie. And we're kind of the guys who were just purely objective. Like, we're just here to help you get the movie made. We didn't decide that the movie, you'd only get $10 million for, for the movie. That's what you were able to raise. That's what the financiers have agreed to. And we're just trying to help you make it for that amount of money. So we're, we're kind of the cold logic in a, a, a business where cold logic is not something that people are uh, generally using. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that, right? Like, you know, Hollywood's the the land of hopes and dreams and you're deploying this code logic, you're scrutinizing the data. And and like, let's think of it this way, right? Like, let's say you've scrutinized the data, you've done your due diligence, you've looked at the script and the, the, the shooting schedule, the budget, you've looked at it all really closely. 
and you, you've issued a bond for it. You know, green light, everything is moving forward. But, you know, you know better than anyone. You know, things can go all sorts of cattywampus in ambitious film projects. And to mix metaphors here, you and your team, y'all got to keep the wheels on the proverbial bus. Uh-huh. So how do you monitor films to, to make sure that they're moving in the promised direction? Yeah. Uh, we visit the set. We get daily reporting. So that's, you know, we get all the, the, the daily paperwork that gets generated on a movie call sheets, production reports that, you know, schedules that show you, you know, what they're doing and, and how it's going. And then we get daily, weekly cost statements as well. Like I said, we visit the set, we talk to the producers, the accountant, you know, so we're fully monitoring the movie on a daily basis. Now, when I say we visit set, we, you know, we'll make a couple of visits to, to have meetings, see how things are going to see firsthand, but we're not, you know, we don't hang out there the full time, you know, it's just a, a brief visit. But if we're there, a lot, that means there's a problem and that we're trying to resolve. You know, if everything's going good, and that's what we always tell filmmakers, if it's going great, we're not going to bother you. Like, you're barely going to know we're there. Like, we're not, you know, if things are going well, you're you're barely going to know that the bond company was even involved. Um, it's only if things go wrong. So, you know, we are monitoring all that stuff on a daily basis. And our job is to sort of look down the, the, the train tracks a bit and see where things are going and get ahead of issues. Because... You know, we don't jump in and say, this is a problem and you have to do this and this and this. It's We'll say, hey, we're seeing this. Let's have a conversation about it. It seems like you might have a problem here. What do you guys think? Are you seeing this? Okay, you know, what are you planning to do about it? Do you have any ideas? You know, we're there to sort of be an early, you know, warning detecting system. And, you know, only if the producers fail to course correct or do anything about it, do we then sort of have to implement ourselves into that sort of decision-making, you know, but, you know, we're there to hopefully just kind of provide guide rails and, and sort of early warnings because, you know, again, what I was saying is everything is about decision-making. And so if you could say, Hey, you're going to end up with a problem here, this is going to end up costing you a hundred thousand dollars. You don't have, you know, there's still time to do something about it. And it's important because the resources are not unlimited. You know, a lot of times people don't want to tell the director, like, this is a problem or we can't do this. If you say, look, if we do this, it's going to cost this extra money. And that means that we're not going to have that extra money for something else. And you just want to make sure that people are making decisions with full view of the facts. Because what can happen a lot of times is you get to post and there's no contingency money left. And, you know, director will say, well, why don't we have any money? I want more music. I want more of this. It's like, well, we went over for doing these other things during the shoot. And they'll say, well, why didn't somebody tell me? I would have changed something because I wanted, I'd rather have that money for music. Mm. Right. And that's, you know, that's always what we're trying to do is really just to bring everything out into the sunlight, say, guys, you know, this is where this is going. What do we want to do about it? Right. So that way nobody can sort of Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, well, if I had known, if we'd done this, et cetera, you know, it's let's make a decision in full view of the facts, which is ultimately the most respectful thing you can do for a director is tell them where they are. Let them make decisions with full knowledge of, of, of the facts. And that's what I try to make sure is happening. Steve, I have to confess to you that as you were sharing those thoughts with me, I realized that I have 
two substantial prejudices in this conversation, <laughs> and I didn't anticipate them in advance of the conversation. The first is that I'm very pro Steve Berman. <laughs> I, I like you a lot. I think you're clever and sweet and wonderful, and I'm just so happy to be with you. I'm a bit of a Steve Berman fanboy. And then I have this other prejudice, which is sort of like this vision that I have of this overzealous, hyper-ambitious, sort of quixotic film director or producer who is a bona fide artist and they have a vision, but they just have like no grounding in reality and costs. Right. And while my first prejudice I'll stand by, I will remain pro Steve Berman throughout this conversation and beyond, I do believe. Thank you. <laughs> I'm hoping I can get you to kind of support or refute or uh, otherwise maybe mitigate this other vision I have of a producer or director who is quixotic. Right. I guess to <laughs> I guess I'm not asking a question. I guess my question is to what degree is that vision that I have, which is probably born of Hollywood films itself, right? Right, that there's this tendency among filmmakers to be chasing windmills all the time, right? Can you have reasonable conversations? Do they know the score? Are these conversations often easy because they recognize that? You know, you gotta move goalposts sometimes to make things happen. I'm not asking a great question, but I feel like you're going to help me through this. Well, no, it's it's a good question, and just so you know, I, not the uh, Steve Berman fanboydom, but I don't share that, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, funny enough, when I first started at Film Finances, you know, like I said, I came from film school. I wanted to be a director, so you know, the idea of yes, the the um, you know renegade director who's going to make his masterpiece at all costs, you know, was a hero to me, right? So I come here and I remember sitting in the first meetings at Film Finances and people would talk about, oh, you know, the budget, the budget. And I was like, well, but is the movie any good, guys? Like, is the movie going to be good? Shouldn't <laughs> yeah. that be what we care about? Which, you know, and I totally get. And let me just say that me personally and the people that work at the company, which is why I like the company, are all film fans. We all come from film backgrounds. We're not insurance actuarials. We're not finance people. We're film people. So we're film fans. We love movies. And obviously, we love the, the, the movies that everybody else loves and worship the same directors that, that everybody else worships. Now, you know, what's the, the question we're answering? So if we're dealing with a, to use your term, Quixotic director who we know is, doesn't care about what the hell the budget is, they're going to make their vision no matter what, maybe we can't bond it. Or we'll need to bond it and we'll need a lot of extra contingency, right? Or we'll... We'll need other provisions that protect us. Can I tell you an anecdote about the history of the company, about a particular movie? Because it's interesting. Please and thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, it, and I don't want to be too name droppy, but you know, in the history of the company, we've worked with pretty much every filmmaker you could think of. I mean, I think the only two major filmmakers that we never bonded are Spielberg and Lucas. So Francis Coppola uh, coming after Apocalypse Now, no studio would fund a movie because he was so, quote unquote, out of control, right? Yeah. Um, he wanted to make this movie The Outsiders. Um, 
and no studio would make it. So he had to make it independently. He needed to get bank financing. He needed to be bonded. So, you know, the company basically, you know, obviously I wasn't around for this, I, but there's been books written about it. And obviously I've heard directly from the people who were involved. And they basically said, look, Francis, we, you know, nobody's going to control you. So you need to basically put up a bunch of money of your own money. And we need to have all this sort of like, you need to bet on yourself. And that's the only way we can bond you. And, you know, it was a very just straightforward conversation. Ultimately, he made the movie on time and on budget. And, you know, it's still obviously a, a classic uh, regarded movie, but he was sort of put in director jail by the studios and only through going the independent route and having to prove himself with a bond company, you know, was he able to get a, a movie made. So that's sort of a direct example of, of kind of what you're talking about. A similar thing happened with John Landis. The Blues Brothers went crazy over budget. So basically American Werewolf became this small independent bonded movie that film finances bonded, which I was delighted to hear about when I, when I discover in my time with the company, because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Hell yeah. But, um, but so, yeah, so like these, 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 you know, visionary directors who went wildly over budget ultimately find themselves having to deal with the bond company. And, you know, you just go into that very upfront and honest and wide eyed about where, where everyone's coming from. And this is how we can work together. And yes, it usually means that those people have to put some money up or somebody else has to put some money up to basically uh, protect us, you know, but a lot of times those directors will hold the line because they know they have to. But yes, there are certain filmmakers who we probably couldn't bond now under, <laughs> you know, without having a, a, a huge runway of, of buffer. Um, but look, as my former boss always used to say, like, we're always looking to find a way to a yes. There's never a quick no. It's okay, we have concerns, what are the concerns? How do we get to a yes? Now those conditions may not be achievable, but what is it, how do we get to a yes? And that's sort of the attitude we, we take into it. I love that attitude. And I, I wanna imagine a moment with you. In fact, I, I want you to imagine two very different moments for me, both of which have to do with you or a colleague of yours showing up on set. Right. Yeah. Because things aren't going well financially. Yeah. I'm hoping that you can tell me a story when you showed up on set and things went well. You know, you, you had real concerns, so much so that you showed up on set. And you were able to have a conversation and push things in a more reasonable direction. I want you to tell me that story, bearing in mind that momentarily I'm going to ask you for an opposing story. <laughs> okay. Um, well, sure. I'll, so one instance that I always kind of look back with, with a bit of pride is um, I did a movie. Uh, I'm not going to say the movie, but it was with a iconic action star. Um, I mean, a name that everybody would know, big, big time person. Okay. Um, the movie was going over budget. The producers were not particularly strong. I really didn't know how to, to deal with this. So basically I showed up and, you know, a lot of the over budget was there was ambitions about big set pieces for action sequences and, and new builds and ideas that they had, et cetera. So I show up and the you know, second unit director, 
the producer, the first AD, the stunt coordinator, these were all people who basically, you know, were part of the team of this megastore, right? So their only interest is is making that person happy. Right. So I show up and, you know, I know that, you know, nobody's going to like that I'm there, what I have to say. And um, I basically wind up in a trailer with all of them and they all kind of arms folded looking at me. Yeah. And I said... I said, hey, guys, uh, I'm really glad you're here. I really need your help. You know, there's, there's this situation. It it's impacts the whole movie. It's nobody's fault. But there needs to be solutions. You guys are the experts in how to do this. And I really need your expertise and help in how to come up with solutions or something to that effect. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny. Like, you could almost feel the air go out of the room a little bit. They kind of all started glancing around at each other because, you know, they expected me to show up and say, you know, damn it, you guys need to do this and you need to do that and you're spending too much money. And, you know, they were probably ready to be defensive and tell me where I could shove it and all that stuff. And I just said, look, I need your help. And they all immediately just started saying, well, I guess we could do this and I guess we could do this and I guess we could do this. And they started coming up with solutions and they wound up being very impactful and it, it got us to where we needed to go. And I thanked them and I told them, this is why you guys are great at what you do. And thank you so much. You know, and so I always look back on that as, you know, a life lesson, uh, but also just, you know, a, a proud moment where, you know, I kind of walked into the lion's den and, you know, got what I needed to get done. And, you know, and that is a microcosm of those contentious conversations that we were talking about before, which is that, you know, it, you can't, once people get in a defensive posture, they feel that you're attacking them. They feel that they're on the defense. You're not going to accomplish anything. Right. And so, and it is true. It's not my agenda. It's, Hey guys, the we don't have the money. Right. So I need your help in coming up with some solutions here. And, you know, saying I need your help versus you need to do this is a very different conversation. It goes back to your humility. I love it. Now, with all the humility in the world, would you kindly tell me about a story, <laughs> similar situation, didn't go so swimmingly? I mean, that story obviously is, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a kind of a, uh, a unique anecdote for that one, other than the sense of just basically it falls on deaf ears. There's really nothing you could do other than fire everybody. And they just don't care about the money. Mm. I mean, you do run into that. They literally don't care. Wait, how is that even possible? I have, it's, it's a good question. <laughs> one that I've never been able to figure out the answer to. Okay. I mean, I'm sorry. It's so blunt, but I just, they're so invested in it artistically and they have this vision and they just, they, they have to know that these things need to be financed, but they just, do they legit not care or do they just feel like money is going to fall from the sky? Are they knaves? I mean, I, what's your psychological read of these people who you describe as just not caring about the Benjamins? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things. One is this will be somebody else's problem yours, film finances, or somebody else will have to come in and deal with this. Ultimately, I'm not the one financially on the hook. Mm. Um, okay. There's also, 
a certain attitude of like basically there's no crime in the name of art. Okay. Right. The movie is the only thing that's important, and it will live on. And at the end of the day, the movie is going to be a masterpiece, and no one's going to care how much it costs. Right. So yeah, there's those elements of it, and there's there's also just the, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the uh, hey, I didn't become a producer to deal with problems. <laughs> right. If only. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I mean, there's some of that too. Um, yeah, just some people don't care or don't have the, the wherewithal, the muscle, the you know, the capacity to deal with it. I don't know. It's um, it's not a it's not a simple thing to diagnose. Yeah, I do have a just sort of a side question to that, and I'm afraid it happens to be a question about your feelings when you interface with that. Do you feel? angry does the frustration bubble up or are you somehow able to just see it as it's all part of the business like do you get big feelings around these things uh yes i'd like to think that over time i've gotten more zen about them yeah but um you know i'm sure there's a number of people who get home after their drive in Los Angeles and said, there was some guy like screaming to himself in the car next to me at a light. It was a bit terrifying. So yeah. that was me on more than a few occasions <laughs> of sort of venting. But um, yeah, no, it, it definitely gets to you. Um, okay. Yeah, it's frustrating. I, you know, it's incredibly frustrating, especially when, if you can see the two trains are heading towards each other from far out, and you still can't stop them from crashing into each other. Yeah. It's an incredibly frustrating feeling. You know, so, look, problems happen, accidents happen, travesties happen, unforeseen things happen. That's much easier to deal with. What really is, yeah, um, upsetting and sort of gnaws at you is this was such a foreseeable problem that we could have solved. Yeah. But we didn't. Or what, we, we weren't able to get to, you know, move whatever gears needed to happen in order to avoid the two trains from colliding. That's that's the frustrating part. So perhaps to mitigate some of this frustration that I imagine you, you must feel, I want to share with you that another season one podcast alum, your cousin, our pal, Dan Wolf, he's curious about who some of your favorite producers are to work with. And, and like, what is it exactly Dan Wolf wants to know about these folks that make working with them such a pleasure. You know what? It's it's people who are ready to roll up their sleeves and dig into the problems and do the job. That's all I ask for. They don't need to have the solutions. They don't need to, you know, have the immediate capacity to solve the problem. They just need to not run from it. The person who's willing to stand there in the storm and just say, what do we need to do uh, is the person I want to work with and the people I like working with. Because as I was saying, a lot of you know producers, you know, I'm sure you've watched movies and you're like, how many producers does this movie have? There's 20 yeah. producer credits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people want that producer credit, but very few people want to actually do the job of a producer. Um, and, you know, and real producers like that, unfortunately, are a bit rare, or they're definitely in the minority, I guess I should say. And so 
as long as someone is just willing to say, okay, I hear you, there's a problem, let's get into it. Let me deal with that. I'm willing to have an uncomfortable conversation with the director or just any conversation with the director. But there's a lot of people who just want to bury their head in the sand and, you know, I don't want to hear about this. You know, I just want to be at the red carpet premiere. So just the fact of like, you know, who's, who's willing to go through the grimy parts of the job willingly is all I can ask for. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I, I don't know, Steve. I guess I can only hope for you that the proportion of pleasant and kind producers that you have to work with is much greater than those who are, are difficult. Um, I know um, as these things go, you know, these relationships can be thorny, but you know, just who you are as a person, the way I know you, you know, the humility that you bring to the table, I can only imagine that you you know, you bring out the best and the people you're working with and even perhaps the most unpleasant or unprepared of producers, you can, you know, bring out the best in them and and and, and make the thing work. With, with that in mind, I guess, you know, pleasant people who bring out the best in others. One of the most pleasant folks I know, probably the nicest kid on the block, uh, a fellow Angelino of yours by way of Chicago, USA, also a podcast alum, Richard Schwartz wrote this to me. He said, and, and I'm quoting here, I've always been fascinated from afar just how Steve, who's always been the biggest movie buff around since he was a kid, now often finds himself in a position where some of his all-time favorite directors legendary people must essentially genuflect before him <laughs> in order to secure the all-important bond from him that could well be the difference between getting to make their passion project or just not being able to make it at all. With that in mind, Richard has two questions for you. Uh, first of all, he asks, what does it feel like just from a fan perspective to be in that position um look i you know yes i i'm a film lover a huge film buff and i've got to meet a lot of my filmmaking heroes um and i just savor that for the joy and experience you know that it is you know some have proven to be better than others um <laughs> but i just appreciate the hell out of it and i think you know not to pay myself a compliment, but I think the fact that I genuinely respect what they do comes across. And, you know, when people feel that they're respected and acknowledged, that always makes the, you know, those things uh, go much smoother. And I, you know, not in a fanboy or you're my idol kind of way, but just the, you know, a respect for the profession that they do and what they've accomplished in their careers. And, you know, I hope that always comes across, if not blatantly stated yeah richard also wants to know like just how difficult it is when you come to the conclusion that as much as the fan in you would love to be part of working with these luminaries the cold hard business calculations just reveal too much risk to take on the project right it's 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 hard but at the end of the day um my 
responsibilities, loyalties are to my company and I do what's best for the, for the company. Yeah. Uh, I'm not there to be a benefactor for filmmakers, even if I may admire them and respect them. Um, so it's, it's not, it's actually not a hard decision. It wouldn't be a pleasant conversation to have. It never is to have to tell somebody that we won't be able to help them, but that one is not a difficult decision to make. I guess that makes sense. You know, with all of your years of experience doing what you do, you look at it, you run the numbers, you have your hopes, but if things don't add up, things don't add up, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, luckily that particular, you know, um, situation hasn't, there, there haven't been many instances of that. Yeah. And we've usually, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, we've found a way to get to yes. Now, some of them, maybe in hindsight, we wish we'd said no, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we were able to do it. Um, you know, I just on that front, uh, you know, and it's on my IMDB page or whatever, so I'm not talking out of school, but I bonded Warren Beatty's last movie. Yeah. Um, and so I actually wound up spending a lot of time w with Warren, which obviously he's an icon of icons in Hollywood and, you know, got to hear a lot of amazing stories from him. And so that was a uh, very unique and uh, enjoyable experience. Are you as enchanted by the folklore, myth, and legend of Hollywood today as you were 20-some years ago when you showed up there chasing dreams? You know, I, I actually probably am now much more nostalgic because that Hollywood doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. And I don't want to be too cynical, but it's just very different now. The streaming world has changed everything. And... um you know, the sort of Hollywood I fell in love with and came out here to be part of isn't the majority of what goes on anymore. Yeah. So, you know, I do look on it with kind of romantic, nostalgic eyes of, oh, those were better times. You know, I don't know that they in fact were, but that is how I reflect upon it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I guess perhaps it's just natural that, you know, dudes get to a certain age we're going to be nostalgic no matter what, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. But I, but you know, I, 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 I sort of fact check myself on this all the time of like, am I just being an old guy or <laughs> has the world changed? Yeah. And both, you know, so I have a 12 year old daughter and I show her movies and I show her movies from my childhood, et cetera. And, and it warms my heart beyond measure that she has good movie tastes and I think maybe when she was maybe 10 years old, at one point she just said to me, she said, Papa, why are all the movies, the older movies, so much better than the new movies that came out? And I like almost started crying because yes. I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> they were better. <laughs> yeah. So she's, she's my validation that I'm not just getting old and out of touch. Oh, I so. love everything about that. I love everything about it. That's so sweet, man. Um, hopefully I get to meet your kid one day. Now, Steve, you, you probably noticed a pattern here, right? We had Scott, we had Richard, we had Danny Wolf, but I'm going to break the pattern here. The one Goyam who I reached out to, <laughs> to pepper you with questions, a podcast alum who may or may not have run an underground gambling operation for minors in the nineties. The esteemed Dan Mason, none other than Dan Mason himself, he asked me to ask you 
in a Christian Slater drawl, no less. I don't really do impressions very well, but he wanted me to ask you this sounding like Christian Slater, which I can't do. I shouldn't even try. I make an ass of myself publicly enough. Just do a bad Jack Nicholson. And I'm Christian Slater. <laughs> Is that the move? That's the move. All right. Dan wants you to share a story or two of tempting films that FFI just couldn't fund, either because the situation was too shady, yeah, it kind of smelled something there, or because the producer came with what Dan calls an unreliable reputation. Now, of course, he wouldn't want you to drop names inappropriately, but can you do Dan a solid and talk about tempting films that you couldn't fund for one of those reasons or both? Well, I can't talk about any specific ones. Um, just I don't think that would be fair to the people involved. But um, it, yeah, it's 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 just the there's too much risk here, or these people have proven unreliable. You know, at the end of the day, you're betting on people, and if there's just no sort of helping someone from themselves, then there's really nothing you could do. And and you know, in terms of kind of being a manager or you know, a risk assessment, executive, whatever you want to say, you know, a lesson I've learned over and over again, which is that, you know, when someone shows you who they are, you have to believe them and you can't foolishly hope that they'll just change or get better. Yeah. So, you, you know, if you, if you spot a weak link, uh, you know, you have to do something about it or change it. Just hoping that it gently gets better is never going to work. So I guess in that, in that respect, there's some people that we just say, sorry, we can't work with you. And it's it's not a big list, um, but it does happen. At the same time, on occasions, I would imagine that you see something in a person or you see something in a script or a production and you feel like the numbers could be tight, but you can make it happen. The team can come together and make this thing happen. And I would imagine that in those situations in particular, things can be, shall we say, a little bit stressful. And with that in mind, could I get you to explore the stresses of your work and like how, other than screaming in your car on the long commute home, <laughs> you managed to grapple with those stresses? Wow. Um... Well, yes, the, there's always stress uh, in the work. It's it's um, it's not great, and the and the situation you laid out is probably you know the majority of situations. There's you know most movies we're going in, and we know there's you know in a perfect world not enough money to make them, right? Is that so? Well, I don't mean that there's not enough money to make them. I mean that there's not there's not there's not a surplus of cash, yeah. right? As a, as I, I went before, they're backing into a number. So things have to go right. And obviously we leave, as I mentioned, contingencies and there's buffers for things that go wrong. But, you know, the majority of time, the vast majority of time, you're going into those contingencies, right? Things go over, um, you know, sometimes willingly, but, you know, many times just because that's the way it goes um, because we've backed into a number. And, you know, again, sort of we have to navigate the thing of like, well, we could we can't insist that a budget is so comfortable that we don't have any risk because that budget will never get financed, right? So we're always getting a little close to, okay, this is solvable. Like we can get there, 
but it's not a um, it's not a wide window that we're or a big lane that we're driving through. It's pretty narrow, right? Yeah. Um, so the majority of time we're, you know, we're nervous that things could go off the rails. Um, and the question is how you grapple with I, that. how you manage yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I keep trying on different ways of dealing with that. Obviously just time and experience, the fact that you've kind of been through a number of these storms and come out of the other side alive, you know, gives you some like, okay, I've been here before. You know, there's a solution to this. There's a moment in the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington where it, Tom Hanks gets the phone call that like the important file is missing at his law firm. And he hangs up the phone and he just keeps repeating to himself, every problem has a solution. Every problem has a solution. Yeah. And that sort of flashes in my head all the time when I get, you know, the bad news or the oh crap moment, which is, okay, there's a solution here. Let's start focusing on that. Let's focus on what we're going to do about it. The worst thing you could do is sit there and stew about it, look for someone to blame, point fingers, and just say, whose fault is this? It's, okay, there's a problem. What do we do about it? How do we solve this? Yeah. I, I want to pick up right there because you you are talking about we. How do, how do we solve this? What are we going to do about this? And one thing that we haven't managed to do yet in this conversation, which is uh, admittedly and obviously my fault, is to, to talk about the fact that you, you work with, with a team at Film Finances and you're the vice president of this firm and you're part of a team. And I hope I could get you to explore some of the, the team dynamics with maybe, maybe a little extra focus on your leadership in that team. Sure. Um, well, so yeah, we, you know, we're a relatively small company we kind of have three tracks of divisions. So you have production, which is what I do, which is the people who actually you know, review the shooting, uh, script, budget, schedule, monitor, go visit set, et cetera. Uh, we have our business legal affairs, obviously, and that's its own complicated thing, especially with the way movies are financed these days. It's very complicated. And then you have our uh, post-production side, who obviously deal with post-production and delivery of the movie. And so basically, you know, on any one movie, you have, a, you have one individual from each of those divisions uh, managing a project. So when I kind of say the we, it's I'm talking about them. I'm also talking about the, the company as a whole. Uh, and actually, I'm even, you know, and I'm including the filmmakers as well in that. But as far as within the company and in my leadership there, I definitely try to lead by kind of quiet example. And, you know, we everyone has a bit of autonomy, like this is your project. You know what our sort of rules of engagement are you we've all been through this we know how we deal with things we know how we solve problems that we've all experienced before and i'm trusting you to do that obviously if things come up and you have concerns or we're sort of outside of the normal situation come talk to me about it so that's generally how we try to operate you know and i look at it as you know let's we have weekly meetings we just kind of have general check-ins and try to get ahead of problems um, but yeah, I don't try to, um, micromanage people and, you know, in terms of my role, it's kind of, well, if there's a decision that needs to be made and somebody needs to be held accountable for it, yeah. uh, I guess that's my job, yeah. right? Yeah. Because ultimately we're in the risk business. And if we need to make a decision on something, like I said, that's sort of unique, unconventional, 
uh, in some capacity, then, well, it's my job to ultimately make that decision and be the one who has to hold my hand up and be accountable for it if it doesn't go well for us. Right. I mean, because indeed you are the executive vice president, the vice president's role can be tricky. I learned that from Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, but it is, I mean, all jokes aside, the VP role is, you know, it, 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 it can be a little tricky. Maybe I could get you to talk a little bit about the working relationship between you and the president of FFI. Sure. Well, you know, I, I've always laughed a bit at the titles we have at the company. Okay. Like I said, we're a small company. We're sort of a family and a none of us internally really think about the titles, you know, and what they mean. It's not a classic, you know, very bureaucratic uh, structure. And so um, the president and I uh, really are just collaborators. You know, he's head of, of legal business affairs and he, and he is president of the company and ultimately, you know, the, the buck stops with him. But we sort of work as a team collaborating across the entire company to make sure that we're sort of covering all avenues. So I don't, you know, quote unquote, report to him. We're really just, a, you know, I look at it as a partnership and we have a great personal relationship. We're, we're very good friends. And, you know, thankfully we see the world through similar lenses. So it's pretty rare that we don't have a similar take on a situation. So it, it, it's actually a great partnership. And that's part of why, you know, going back to why have I been there for 23 years? Because it's good people. Yeah. And I like the people I work with. I love that, man. Now, I should mention here, if it's not clear enough to our listeners, you rose up pretty quickly, you know, and when you look back on it, did that create any problems for you or for the firm? Did it ruffle any feathers or did, did it just make sense that you should get the title and the responsibility early in your career? Well, I would say my only the most recent sort of uh, ascension, if you will, I think there was a, a, a little bit of uh, feather ruffling. I got a lot of support, but also some feather ruffling just based on seniority and, and things like that, which, by the way, I don't begrudge anybody. And I completely understood. And if I, you know, if roles had been reversed, I probably feel the same. Similar to what I was saying before, I don't tend to worry about any of those things. I just, I've always had the attitude of let the work speak for itself. Yeah. Just put your head down, do the job. Don't worry about the, um, the optics, the personal stuff, you know, um, your personal feelings. If, uh, it's just do the job and that will sort everything else out. Yeah. And that's proven to be the case time and time again. I mean, I'll, because you know me and we grew up together, you know that, you know, when I was 14, I looked like I was about six. <laughs> and that didn't change much in my 20s. Yeah. So I was out here and once I was sort of given the, the sort of, you know, actually made a bond rep, a production executive, and suddenly had my own movies to manage, which I was, I guess, about 25, 26, I was showing up at movie sets and I probably looked like I was 15 years old. Yeah. And... You know, so I show up as, oh, the bond company's here, and they thought I was just a PA. Right. And um, so immediately I would get sort sort of sideways looks and, you know, questioning my competency. You know, are you somebody's son? Yeah. Like, is that why you're getting this gig? And I dealt with a lot of that. And, you know, 
I just never fed into it. I just would, you know, sort of smirk or laugh it off with a joke and then say, okay, but let's now get into what we need to get into. And I just focused on the work. And that was always my attitude. And I think it's proven effective, you know, and it's just, you know, I can't do anything about how young I look. I can't do anything about your personal feelings about me, you know, whatever the situation is. So I'm just going to do the job. And if I do the job well, I'm sure I'll earn your respect. I mean, listen, Stevie B, you're speaking my love language, right? I'm the guy who's got the podcast about working. (laughs) So when you say, you know, uh, just get down, do the work, work with others, like that, that means a lot to me. It's always great to hear people frame it like that. But I know that your work isn't always easy. Indeed, sometimes it's probably like a legit grind. So I'll ask you, like, what is the biggest grind of your work? And and how do you grapple with that grind? Well, the biggest grind is really, um, it's not an individual instance, it's more of a global, you know, grind of the job, which is, the phrase I use is that we don't have a lot of high five moments. There's not, we achieved something, we've sell, we created something, something was a success. You know, success is for us is movie, a movie goes well and delivers. Well, that's just what's supposed to happen, right? So a lot of our time and energy is spent on managing problems and dealing with problems. You know, and, and then once you mitigate a problem, it's not a celebratory feeling. It's more of a just, well, I'm glad that's over. Yeah. Um, and I think when, you know, I, I've spoken to you before and I made an analogy to sort of like being the fire department, you know, we're sort of nervous systems are attuned to just putting out fires, which, you know, is is stressful. And that's the stuff that really monopolizes your your energy and time. So it, that can be a bit of a grind. And, you know, you don't get the flip side of that of like the celebratory, hey, we we did this amazing thing or, you know, so that is. I guess what I would say is the biggest grind and downside of, of the work itself. On the flip side of what's really nice about the company, just to sort of give you the, the full perspective is one, obviously the team that I work with, which is, you know, an intimate team or really a family and people don't leave. Um, so that's a very nice feeling. It, you know, the other good part of the company of why, you know, even though, you know, there is that grind element of it, we get to see such a wide spectrum of the business. As I was mentioning, we've worked, you know, on blockbuster movies, A-list filmmakers, you know, tiny little genre movies, you know, movies that you'd be embarrassed to know that you were involved in. (laughs) We see the full gamut. And so that's really, you know, nice as opposed to other people who just kind of work in one track their whole life. And the most important thing, or not most important, but I'd say one of the, the biggest benefits is that we don't really need to go around hunting for the work. We don't need to sell our product. We don't have to spend any energy, you know, convincing someone to bond their movie. Yeah. You either need it or you don't. Yeah. So the work just shows up. So, you know, I, I actually do feel for people who have to go sell themselves all the time, you know, and, and work so hard just to get the job. Mm. And I don't take it for granted that we don't have to do that. The work just shows up. So we can put all our energy into just doing the job, which is actually you know, a luxury that I try not to lose sight of. Yeah, I appreciate that exercise and perspective. Steve, I have to tell you that as unwelcome as this question might be, early in our conversation, 
right at the beginning, you know, you were talking about how you went to Hollywood to become that renegade director. And you've been not renegade directing <laughs> for 23 years, but you've learned a lot in the process. Do you still sometimes have the itch to do just that? Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh, I do. Um, but like, you know, many people, life gets in the way, family gets in the way. And, you know, I, and I, by the way, I don't blame anybody else or experience, you know, excuses for it because if it was really my passion and I'd followed it through, that's on, on me no matter the circumstances. So yes, do I still have the itch and would I love to entertain it? Yeah. And I, and I also don't think it's ever too late if I wanted to do that um, or do something uh, other than what I'm doing. But I found a place I was good at it. I was welcomed and I made a life for myself. Yeah. And I'm still in an industry that I love. And, you know, I've had some great triumphs of being involved in movies that I think are amazing movies and I think will stand the test of time. And uh, I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah, man. I I figured you would be. You got to be cool with that. I just had to ask if you sometimes uh, let your mind wander in that direction. But you were just talking about having some triumphs, and you know I don't let people leave here without talking about triumphs and failures. So let me get you to talk about one of those professional triumphs that you have in mind when you're having a good day and you're reflecting nostalgically on the good times? So as far as a triumph, um, you know, there, there was a project and I, I don't really want to say the name of it for, for certain reasons, but um, it came to us and it was a, you know, a very heavy drama, period drama, written and directed and starring basically an unknown. And this just on its face had the recipe of a complete disaster. My first impulse was there's no way we can do this. And the reason why is because, you know, he's the director, he's the writer, he's the star. If he's going off the rails, what are we going to do about it? He's the star of the movie. Right. Right. We can't fire him as the director. <laughs> the producers were buying his script. Like if this guy goes off and, you know, it was a, you know, quote unquote, important movie. It wasn't like a little horror movie. This was like an important social justice type of movie. So, you know, this was an impassioned project and you could easily end up with, you know, somebody who's like, well, I can't make any sacrifices. This is too important. So I was like, there's no way we're going to, we're going to be able to do this, but we'll take the meeting. We'll do the job or, you know, we'll do that, our diligence. And I went and I met with the guy and I came out of the meeting and I went, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I believe in him. Mm. I believe what he's telling me. I believe in what he's going to do. And I just feel we have to do this, even though kind of on paper, this is a disaster waiting to happen. And, you know, I kind of stuck my neck out a bit at the time with my boss. And I said, I think we got to do it. And we did do it. It wasn't easy, but, um, we got through it and the guy was everything I thought he would be. And one of the greatest, um, you know, kind of, um, reflections is 
the movie got nominated for a bunch of things and I was at the independent spirit awards. I hadn't seen him because the movie had obviously been delivered, come out, et cetera. And he like ran across the room and gave me this giant hug Aww. because he knew I'd put my faith in him. I'd stuck my neck out for him. You know, I followed my instincts against my sort of cold logic uh, analysis and that it paid off. And obviously he was truly appreciative of it and recognized that, you know, the support I had given him. So that was a very rewarding experience. Oh, you gave me goosebumps, Steve Berman. Ah, that's why I always ask guests to do the failure first, because now like I'm feeling all <laughs> warm and fuck, I never get this right. All right. Well, that's um, my fault. I, I jumped into that first because I don't like talking about the bad stuff, but I'll, <laughs> I'll do it for you. Uh, well, yeah, please do. I mean, well. Well, so on the flip, on the flip side of that. Give it to me. Um, All right. Uh, we don't always get it right. You know, we sometimes make calls that we regret, um, and I've definitely done that. Specifically, um, I did a movie that is a big movie took place a lot of water involved okay and they sort of had a plan of how they were going to do this on the visual effects side and it was a unique plan and i remember saying this plan it, it is a house of cards because if it doesn't work plan b is exorbitantly expensive and without getting into too much of the politics of it you know ultimately we agreed to do it and exactly what I feared and knew in my bones was going to happen, happened. And it was a very expensive, very tough process. We had to get the movie finished. You know, doing visual effects movies is, is like swimming halfway across the lake. If you, uh -huh, uh -huh. you have to swim another half a lake, yep. no matter what direction you're going. Uh -huh. So <laughs> uh -huh. it was painful and uh, and took up you know probably two years of my life and it was a very unpleasant and and you know wound up not being financially a good thing for us and it's just it's you know it was a failure again like I was saying earlier about you see the two trains heading towards each other and this was a very foreseeable problem that you know we you know just should have should have avoided or something else now you know, it's easy, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback. It could have all gone fine, but, uh, yeah, that one was a, um, a, uh, a bit of a failure. Yeah. But you learn, but honestly, but, but, you know, to put it more positive, uh -huh. every giant step I've taken forward is dealing with, I don't want to say failures, but problems where things don't go well. You don't learn anything when everything goes well. So as unpleasant as they are, I always at least try to value the learning experience that they are and the wisdom that comes from it. 100%. I have to confess to you that I have long had, as have uh, some of my listeners, problems with this you know, question that I ask about triumphs and failures. I mean, because it is indeed the case that we want to challenge ourselves and others to do desperately difficult things. And when we do desperately difficult things, we fail and we learn. So, you know, the star of the Milwaukee Bucks. I, I saw that news conference. It was great. Yeah, it was great. And this whole conversation about, you know, is there such thing as failure in these ambitious enterprises? And 
I love that conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply interested in that conversation. And so I totally feel you, you know, it was a failure, but it was one from which you learned. And that's why you're Steve Berman. <laughs> and, and that should be enough. But before I let you run, I was hoping that you might be able to recommend to our listeners something that, that illustrates or somehow influences your work. It, it could be anything, just something to, to share with our listeners, give them a little bit more. Something that I draw a lot of inspiration from, and I watch it once a year. I'm not very well read, so most of my knowledge comes from watching things. I'm <laughs> embarrassed to say, uh-huh. but um, and this is you know probably a bit of a cliche, but the miniseries Band of Brothers is one of my favorite yes. film or television things ever. I think it's fantastic, and I basically watch it once a year, and it's great on its own face. It's great as a historical uh, drama. But more than anything from it, I always find myself very drawn to the roles of leadership and failures of leadership and the dynamics of leadership from that show. And every time I watch it, I sort of glean something new from it. And, you know, I recognize traits in myself, both good and bad. I recognize those traits in other people. And I find it very um, inspiring every time I watch it. And I make a point to watch it at least once a year. Perfect. I will link to Band of Brothers in the show notes. It will be my pleasure indeed to do so. Steve Berman, it has been such a pleasure to reconnect with you, to hear your voice, to hear your stories, just to share this space with you. Thank you so much for being on For a Living. It's my pleasure. I love speaking to you, Dan. And I said it before, but thank you for everything you've done for me in my life. You're a wonderful person. Thanks, man. All right. That was me in conversation with the sweet, smart, smooth Steve Berman. Ah, Stevie B. So good to me. So good to me. All right. So if you listen to this episode, but you don't follow this podcast... You're, you're kind of doing it all wrong. So please hit the like or the follow or the subscribe button on whatever podcast fetcher you're using. Go on. You can do it now. Hit the button. Maybe leave a review. That sometimes helps. But the best thing you can do is to tell a friend or two about this podcast. I will be back with you in two weeks with the Thomas Jefferson on my Mount Rushmore of interviewers. He's an NPR legend, a Slate alum, and host of the longest running daily news show in the potosphere. Do you know who it is? I wonder how many of you do. Eh, I'll leave it hanging for a couple weeks. No harm in that. Until then, please do whatever it takes to be healthy. Start with the little things. I'll be battling it out in the classroom and looking forward to the next episode of this year's podcast. People, my people, please take care.